Contours, a podcast of FEBC Korea in Los Angeles. So Dr. Tim Yolhoff is a professor of communication studies at Biola University. He just came out with a book called I Beg to Differ, Navigating Difficult Conversations with Truth and Love. Um, Dr. Rick Langer is a professor of biblical studies and theological integration, and he's also the director of the Office for the Integration of Faith and Learning. So for the sake of brevity, may I call you by your first names? Yes, by all means. Okay, so now with your permission, I will refer to you now as Rick and Tim. So Rick and Tim are co-authoring a new book about the counterpublic. Um, now let me ask them to tell you a little bit more about it. Well, uh, the book is called Christian Counterpublics in the Argument Culture. And a counterpublic is when you know you're the minority position. You know that you have a view that's not embraced by the majority, but you still want to try to convince people of it. And as we watch our culture steadily move away from biblical values when it comes to sex, truth, God, ethics, uh, we're finding ourselves as Christians being the minority position. We're going to have to learn how to communicate in such a way that the majority will listen to us. So that means in civility, trying to find common ground, doing perspective taking. So that's our project. And I think it's one of the things that the church ought to be really good at. It, mm -hmm. it should be a thing to carry forward a conversation that might be difficult, but we do it with grace, with courage, with conviction. That ought to be a thing that we really excel at. Unfortunately, uh, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years, I don't know that that's been characteristic of the church, and it certainly has been perceived that way in the uh, culture at large. So I think that's a very timely issue. That's part of why Tim and I began teaching a class that addressed this topic. And uh, it's been a thing that even as we've done that, we've become more and more convinced of how urgent it is in this moment to just kind of learn as a church to speak with a voice that can be heard and, uh, and received by the, by the audience we're talking to in our contemporary culture. And because I teach communication classes, I'm very interested in parts of the Bible that actually talk about communication, particularly with people who disagree with you. So Peter in 1 Peter says, I want you to bless those who insult you, which when you hear that, you think that is not reasonable. And how can I bless a person that has just insulted me? And Jesus would say, I want you to turn the other cheek. Uh, Paul would say, I want you to uh, win over those who are evil, but do it with goodness. Uh, the book of Proverbs says a gentle word turns away wrath. Well, that's really hard to do, especially when you feel like things you care about are being attacked. So this book will focus on in the argument culture today where we do tend to attack each other as Christians. How can we respond in a way that is both, as Paul would say, full of truth and love? And sometimes the church does a really good job with the truth part. We don't do a great job with the love part. Okay, our first segment is about intergenerational interactions and communication. First question for you is, what important conversations are happening across the generations about millennials? You know, one thing that I would say at the outset is that one of the kind of chronic problems I think with generations is you don't actually have conversations. Right. It's mm -hmm. really significant in a conversation for it to be both ways, for there to be deep listening. And I think it's the listening button that tends to turn off on both sides. It is definitely not, oh, the younger generation doesn't listen, but we old people do, or the opposite. I think both sides have a way of just tuning out the other side, and then you just short-circuit conversation. It doesn't matter what you're talking about or what you're trying to talk about. You've already got your own mind made up, and you're not really hearing what the other person says. One of the reasons we don't have this intergenerational conversation is we can't even agree on what form of communication is mm -hmm. best. 
For instance, I had a friend of mine who also has teenage sons who absolutely refuses to do Facebook, Twitter, uh, or anything like that. She said, I just won't do that. It's stupid. And I said, do you realize how you just cut off all of this communication mm -hmm. with your children? So I am not tech savvy. Rick can absolutely attest to that. But I made, Noreen and I made a conscious decision to do Twitter with our kids. And can you have in-depth conversations with your kids via Twitter? I'm not sure you can have in-depth conversation, but there's these great touch points you can have with your kids. So in communication, we distinguish between two forms of communication. One is we call emphatic. Those are the big dramatic moments. But the other one is called phatic, which are these daily touch points. You have like corny jokes, um, silly touch points. I think Twitter is beautiful for that. So in many ways, I communicate on a more regular basis with my three sons via Twitter uh, than I do ever before. Sometimes I'll just send them the letter K, like just K, and I just say, isn't it nice that dad's cool? But we can dig our heels in, right, Rick? We can say, no, 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 you have to communicate in a way that I think is the best form of communication. Thus, we have a standoff and no communication because we can't even agree on what is the best form right, of communication. Right. This was an issue for me when my kids began to text message people. I wasn't one of the people. That's not because they didn't like me, but because they knew it was not worth their their the effort of their thumbs to try and send mm -hmm. me a, a message because I just didn't text. Um, and even I saw this with my own kids in terms of how the generations changed in a very short period of time where my daughter, when she got a cell phone, primarily used it to call people. Mm -hmm. My son, two to three years later, when he got his cell phone, primarily used it to text people. And my wife picked up on it more quickly a couple years you know, into that process where I would call Mark and never hear back from him. Sure, he would text him and get a response right away. Yeah. And it's just what Tim said. I was not willing to move into his preferred communication vehicle because of whatever. I was stubborn because I, my thumbs were too big to make my phone work right. Whatever it was, I was unwilling to overcome those barriers. And it just kept the conversation from happening because I wasn't willing to, to enter into his media, so to speak, for, for doing the communication. And I think that's the key word, what Rick just said, the word stubborn. So we can dig our heels in generationally and to say, listen, I'm not going to send you a text. We're not, we're not going to do this. And why haven't you set up your voicemail on your phone? <laughs> that drives all three of my kids. There is You can't leave a voicemail. It's not right. been set up. Because Michael would say, my oldest son would say, I don't call my friends. That's not how we primarily mm -hmm. communicate. We do it through text messages and stuff like that. So we can be stubborn and we can say, I just refuse to adapt. And it doesn't mean that I can't um, make suggestions to my kids and to say, but hey, there's other forms of communication, mm -hmm. by the way, not just socially mediated forms. But if they don't see me being adaptable, then why should I expect them to be adapt, you know, to adapt mm -hmm. to what my preferences are? So I really do think it's a give and take proposition. And we can't just be stubborn and dinosaurs when it comes to communication because it's changing all the time and in some really good ways. So we see that this intergenerational communication is challenging within families. But how do you see it affecting the local church community? You know, that's another interesting area where I think this is also fairly common with different generations, but particularly right now, the younger generation has, has disconnected from the church in a very significant mm -hmm. way. 
So it's become very difficult to uh, find churches that have thriving 20-something communities, or if you do, all they are is a 20-something community. I remember vividly going to church with my daughter one time. It was a church that was thick with Mm -hmm. 20-somethings, and they uh, wanted everyone who was married to stand up and have everybody pray for them. Well, the church I came from, if you said everyone who's married stand up, 85% of the congregation would stand up. And if you asked married for kids, it would have been about the same because that was the, the, the age that we were. My wife and I stood up in an auditorium with over a thousand people, and there was about four other couples standing up. Wow. It mm. was just a mass of 20-somethings who had congregated together. And I think that phenomenon, just the way you break down conversation without listening to each other, you break down part of the church when the generations don't get over it and worship together. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really major challenge right now in this uh, you know moment. I, I think it's always been with us, but I think it's particularly difficult right now. And it's interesting that you would ask that question about a church uh, as opposed to a family, because the church is supposed to be a family. Mm-hmm. And so the stubbornness that we just mentioned absolutely comes into the church. Let me give you a for instance. Our church has to deal with this issue that sometimes when the pastor gets up and he reads from the Bible, he's doing it off an iPad or even his phone. And when he says, hey, turn to Ephesians, uh, a ton of the congregation is using their phones to do it. Well, some of the older individuals were absolutely upset about that, saying, no, 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 the word of God is this book, Mm -hmm. and I want to have them turn the pages of scripture, right? So there you had that. That could become a very big thing in a church that could actually divide a church, to which we had to have a very thoughtful conversation to say, hey, by the way, the word of God is not your bound book. Mm -hmm. So I don't care if it's a Kindle version of the Bible, or you've got a bound paper copy. The the form of it is not what's important. It, it's the content of it. Mm-hmm. But, but our church had to work through that because there were some people who were really upset when the pastor did it. It hit the fan and even made a joke. You know, the version I'm using is Google. Or He said he tried <laughs> to make a joke. Well, that was not funny to some people in our church. Well, that's where the stubbornness thing comes back in again. So I think we're to be charitable with each other to understand what is the really the main point that we need to get at, not uh, whether it's contemporary music or traditional music, right. right? Whether the pastor is wearing jeans or not. And that's very regional. All my kids were born in North Carolina, where you wore uh, at least a shirt and a tie, and most likely the men wore a coat and tie. Well, we get to California, and it looks like people were deciding if they're going to go to the beach or church, and it's probably <laughs> both. Right? And they never have a tie. They never. couldn't find a tie no. if they needed one. No. One of the other things that's interesting, what Tim was just talking about, you know, we think, oh, the iPad, the Kindle, these are these technological innovations. And we forget the book was once a technological oh, innovation. In the time of Christ, it isn't just even a question of the printing press. A book itself was a technological innovation that instead of a scroll, which to get to any passage, if you wanted to get to Isaiah 43 off a scroll, you had to roll 43 chapters through. With a book, you flip to that. The whole idea of flipping to a page, Bible drills that some people do growing up, these are all things that are an artifact of a technological innovation that came between a couple of generations that I'm sure whatever the generation before is, we want to go back to the scrolls. 
But the young kids know we like our books and we're repeating those things again and again and again. And it's a very unproductive thing to, to stand and hold up your hands against the tide of technological change and say, I refuse to, because that tide will just sweep right past you and you'll be left watching it all go by. And we forget that even the older generation never was on the same page, even though it was a book form. Was it the King James Version right. of the Bible, right? The 1611 yeah. King James Version. If you weren't using that, that was a huge compromise. So there's a, there's a scholar named Marshall McLuhan. He studied um, the effects of media, and he broke it down into epochs. And he said, with every change in media, you need to ask two questions. And I think this is so informative. One, what is gained? And second, what is lost? With each advancement, going from scroll to book, to multimedia, social media, we always should ask the question, millennials, boomers, everybody, what is gained and what is lost? And if you can't answer both of those, then I don't think you're being objective. And one of the interesting things uh, in terms of gaining and losing things is oftentimes the thing that you gain is for those who adopt it, they're very cognizant of. They know what it is they picked up, but you're very blind to what you lose. And so, for example, with to take the example we were just talking about with, with a book versus an iPad or a Kindle, I have found in my own life, because I do use an iPad to, to do a lot of my reading, and sometimes that'll include my devotional reading, it is easier for me to remember where things are in a book mm. when I'm seeing it in the same framework. I, you always remember it's actually in this part of the page. I don't know what chapter it was in, but I remember it was on the inside right column. On my Kindle, on my iPad, where it is, is always changing. If I look at it on an iPhone, there is no spatial location of it. And then you find yourself actually having lost something simply because of the technology it was mediated through. And again, does that make it bad? Well, yeah, that part's bad. This other part's good. I always have it with me. It's a package of trade-offs. And one of the concerns really is to meaningfully acknowledge both. And I think that's one of the things, as Tim mentioned earlier, with you know tweets and, and text messages, there are a set of things that does, the way the kids can connect. I, I, it took my breath away the first month on my cell phone bill when I went ahead and got unlimited texting because it was five bucks and my son was really good. We, we had 100 texts messages a month. Well, Mark would do 99 to 100. You know? <laughs> but finally, I just realized, well, it isn't that big a deal anymore. And so we did it. And the, the first month it was off, he, he had over a thousand text messages that he had sent. Mm -hmm. And I could not understand it. But that's partly a testimony to connectedness, yes. which is a great yeah. thing. Yeah. On the other hand, you connect by sending misspelled forward messages to one another as a person who's a professor and likes things properly capitalized, properly spelled, and properly punctuated. I found that very distressing. Well, there you have it. Some things you win, some things you yeah. lose. Yeah. Our marriage was saved. Noreen bought me a GPS for my car. I I'm a directional illiterate. I, I leave the house. I say to Noreen, raise the kids Christian. You may never see me again. I mean, I, I may never come back. So that was very frustrating to Noreen. So she got me a GPS which I love, but it actually made me worse directionally without a GPS. Mm -hmm. So there's sometimes I'll just be sitting in my car and I'm waiting for somebody to tell me to make a left. And, but I forgot my GPS that day or whatever. And I'm just sitting there like, well, nobody's told me to turn left. So I'm just going to sit here until 
I have some kind of intervention. But spell check is the same thing. Spell check is awesome on your computer, but without it, it's hurt my spelling because now I rely on it. Mm -hmm. So that's all I think we're saying is millennials and busters, we all just need to say, okay, what, what is great about your generation and what did we lose? Mm -hmm. And let's be reflective enough to say that about our generation as well. So how are millennials... What's a way for them to engage with other generations to have that conversation? Because oftentimes that conversation turns into an argument very quickly. So what's some ways that you found that millennials can use to have that conversation or that you can encourage other generations to also use? I would say there's something called perspective taking, which is I stop long enough to see the world from your perspective. So I get out of my perspective as much as possible. And I, I don't just look at your conclusions, but I try to understand what brought you to this place of passion or conviction. The Harvard Negotiation Project says, the biggest mistake we make in conversations is we just trade conclusions. I don't share with you how I arrived at the conclusion. So I need to step back and not be quite so judgmental, but to say, let me hear your backstory. How did you arrive at this place where these are your values? Before I challenge those values, I need to first understand why is this so important to you and what's the good about it? And then move from there to maybe evaluating what they said. Friend of mine was, uh, he was a very good student at a very, very good university and had a professor who was just a, a wonderful man, decided that he wanted to kind of, you know, get to know him better and had somewhat of a mentoring relationship with him. And one day this mentor told my friend, he said, Jim, you try really hard to be an interesting person. You should try harder to be an interested person. And my friend told me that story 25 years after it happened. He said he has never forgotten that. And I think that's one of the things, and again, this works both way with generations, mm -hmm. but if you were to ask what might millennials do, to be authentically interested in hearing mm -hmm. the other side, not just to ask for a gesture, but to really to want to know and understand. And sometimes when you're going forward generation, talking to an older generation, even asking, what was it like? Tell the stories of your growing up and interest in mm -hmm. those kinds of things validates that person. And the exact same thing in inverse for an older generation to talk to younger folks, oftentimes, what are your dreams? What are the things you're excited about? What are you hoping to do? Those sorts of things where you're not telling them anything. You're finding out things about them. I think an authentic interest is one of the great kind of door openers to meaningful conversation. But you really do need to be actually interested <laughs> because people pick up really quickly when you, you ask them this really compelling question and then you look at your watch. Mm -hmm. And this is a pet peeve for our generation. Then you check to see if yeah. there's any text messages. Mm -hmm. Those things send a message that I'm only half interested. I'm only half there. And to know what offends a person. See, sometimes my students, when I'm lecturing, will be texting. And so I just say to them, now, I don't think you mean it this way, but let me tell you from my generation how I interpret this. I interpret your texting as you're bored. What I'm saying isn't relevant. Uh, that's how I interpret it. So I think we have to be very careful to ask the question, what offends the person I'm interacting with? And what will offend a buster is different from what will offend a millennial. But the book of Proverbs says an offended brother is like a fortified city. So if you do offend a person, boy, those defenses go up right away. So the good 
hard work of a good communicator is I need to know heading in what will offend you from the beginning. So there's a certain description of millennials that find very offensive and they hate that depiction. And we there's depictions of us that we find offensive. As much as possible, know those ahead of time because that can really short circuit and stop all authentic communication. So what I'm hearing you gentlemen say is to become this truly interested person, you need to do the perspective taking and building the common ground and going in prior, understanding the triggers of that particular communication partner. Now, all of communication theory can be boiled down to one sentence. Start with agreement and move towards disagreement. If you reverse that, you're in for a load of trouble. If I start with my disagreement, then the defenses go up and listening and interacting is short-circuited. So I want to start as much as possible with what's right with your perspective. And I'll be honest, Christians are notoriously bad at doing this. We are trained to know what's wrong with an atheist perspective or a postmodern's perspective. We're trained to find the error. I think we need to be trained to find the truth in a person's perspective and start from there and move towards disagreement. My PhD is in philosophy, and I went to a you know large secular state university to get my to get my PhD, and basically no one, <laughs> professors or other grad students, shared my religious convictions. I had one friend who was there, but by and large, I was you know the complete outlier. And one of the things I began to do is to just ask people, so what got you interested in philosophy? Because that made sense, because by definition, if you're in a PhD program in philosophy, you must be interested in this. But I kind of stumbled upon that accidentally by just sitting there with a guy at lunch one time, and I asked him that question, and I got this whole long story, in his case, that it had included a mystical experience that he had had and a bunch of other things that I never in a million years would have thought had been there. And we ended up having this really interesting conversation about all this, and the key word there is interested. I was authentically interested. Well, that became a habit for me then. And I still remember one guy walking by. I was I was lying out in the quad reading Plato, as a matter of fact. And uh, he comes walking by, says hi. And, you know, he, he seemed he was probably killing time or something. So we began to chat. And I just asked him that question. Didn't know him very well. He, he spent an hour telling me about his first encounter with philosophy, how he got interested in the big questions of life and all this stuff. And I purposed when I did this to listen to people until they were done telling the story, mm -hmm. to not use it as a springboard to dive in. Mm -hmm. And so he talked for over an hour about this. But it was interesting after he'd done that, he asked me, how did you ever get interested in this? Well, I had a wonderful opportunity at that point to share, because for me, the actual story really does involve my, my mm -hmm. faith. It wasn't bringing up something that was, you know, kind of an outlier thing. But the beginning point of that was a shared common experience. We both valued philosophy. How in the world did you get there? That's an interesting thing. And, and off we went. In many ways, all the things that we've been talking about here in terms of good communication are really just unpacking the meaning of the word love. You know, that I listen mm. to you, that I am not stubborn relative to you. I'm willing to change on your behalf the, this other regardingness is is just deeply foreign to self-centered human beings. And it's exactly what love actually requires of us. So, so really what we're doing here is not much more than trying to be faithful to fulfill the command, love one another. Um, and I think that is a challenge intergenerationally as much as interpersonally. I mean, all those things make that just that much more difficult. But really, it's just a matter of love. 
And let me give you a for instance, having three boys, video games were very popular, still are on college campuses. I'm not going to mention the specific game that my kids were playing, but Noreen and I were just, we, we kind of judged it. I didn't know anything about this game, by the way, except that it was a first person shooter game. And I'm just thinking, okay, I don't like any of this and doggone it. Dad's going to say no, because, you know, go watch some violent TV, but just don't play that game. You know what I mean? <laughs> kind of a thing. So I, one day I just decided, okay, I played it with him. And it was a really interesting experience. One, we had a ton of fun. We were laughing, bonding. Um, they're online with their friends playing this game. So afterwards, we had this really interesting moment of me saying, okay, now I think I know about the game somewhat. And they would agree, yeah, dad, you played with us for you know a couple hours. Now, let me tell you what I both like about it and don't like about it. See, again, that's moving from points of agreement to points of disagreement. I mean, generally speaking, I think zombies should be killed, particularly Nazi zombies. Okay, I think those just should be killed. So it, it was very fun. And I see if I would have started with what I don't like about it, my kids would have said, oh, no surprise. Dad doesn't like it. I saw that coming a mile away. But to start with what I genuinely liked about it and then move to points of disagreement, it opened up room for us now to talk about what kind of compromise we can come to with this game. Because mom and I aren't totally thrilled with this game. I see why you like it. So let's talk about what we can do with those kind of concerns. But I had no credibility before I actually mm -hmm. understood what the game was about and why would it be attractive and that was really cool. Otherwise, I'm just speaking as an old fuddy-duddy saying, I don't like your games. You know, go out and play, kick the, you know, go out and play a game outside, right? So I think that's important for us to have the credibility to be able to speak intergenerationally, which means if I don't know anything about texting or Facebook or Instagram, then how can I critique it legitimately with any kind of credibility whatsoever? Um, you mentioned in our mentorship, Rick, a little earlier, we actually had a focus group of ministry leaders looking for their needs assessment within what they needed while they were serving their church communities. And a lot of these ministry leaders brought up that they had this eager desire to find that mentor. And when they did find that mentor, sought a relationship with them. Oftentimes, these are senior leaders. But what they received was oftentimes that because they're senior leaders, they were busy to make that connection, especially something that was long-term. And so do you think that mentorship is possibly a gap filler for that intergenerational conversation? And what could we do to further that possibility when busyness comes in? Yeah, so I think the idea of, of mentorship is tremendous. I mean, I think it's a very biblical idea of older generation teaching younger generation. Bringing people along that way is just, there's no question in my mind of the value of that. I've had several students ask me to mentor them mm -hmm. or things like that. It doesn't often work out that well. Mm -hmm. And I one of the easiest things to blame it on is busyness. I think that's very real because we, right. we tend to be a chronically busy culture and perversely, we somehow don't think that's wrong. So we brag about our busyness, but mm -hmm. at the same time, everywhere we look, it's causing us problems. So I, anyway, I don't quite understand that one. My experience with this is the more artificial the mentoring is, the harder it is to make it work. When you say, okay, we're going to meet and sit mm -hmm. down and look at each other and now mentor me. 
Well, that doesn't exactly work. The ones that seem to work the best are when you begin doing something together. They see you in action. You cultivate a relationship. I think that often works very well. When it's more of the face-to-face, -face, what often happens is you reinforce the fact that you don't have that many things in common because you're of a different generation. I talk to other people my age about, well, how are your kids doing? Well, if I talk to a 19-year-old about how are your kids doing, they look at me like, are you crazy? I don't have any kids. I don't have a wife. I don't have any plans for either of them. What are you talking about? So I have to go into a whole different bag of conversational tricks to be able to even begin a conversation. And I think we should just accept that as an honest problem. This isn't a terrible thing about me or the student that I might be trying to mentor. It's just an honest difficulty when people don't share the common set of experiences in life. And mentoring is all about trying to bridge that gap. But I think oftentimes the best thing is when you're not face-to-face, -face, but rather you're side-by-side -side addressing mm -hmm. some other third party thing in common, some shared activities, shared concern. We're involved in a counter-public sort of activity together. We're involved in uh, building a building for Habitat for Humanity together, whatever it might be. And this is C.S. Lewis talked about this with the friendship versus romantic love. And he says romantic love is face-to-face. And it tends to exclude others that way. And you, you lock in on the on the partner. Uh, friendship is interesting because it's side by side. The friends sit side by side as they share in something of joint value to each of them. And I think in that metaphor, we really need to think about the mentorship as being that kind of side to side sort of love and concern where we have a shared object that we're both excited about. And then I think the mentoring things can work really well. And I would only add to that the mentoring can go both ways. It's not just the younger generation seeking a mentor in the older generation. For example, as you mentioned, uh, I have a book out called I Beg to Differ. It's a brand new book. A student of mine, Mark, read the book, really liked it. He said, hey, Dr. Miloff, how are you going to get word out about this book? And I said, well, I guess, you know, I'm going to do a couple of radio interviews. The publisher will stick some advertisements in some magazines. And he's like, oh, Dr. Miloff have you heard of something called social media? And I was like, yeah. He said, oh, let me help you. And so I said, Mark, you're on. He created a website for me. He got me on Twitter. We were sending out blasts. We did a, a Facebook event. And honestly, it was a really rich time of him mentoring me, of saying, here's the lay of the land. You know, welcome to the present. And it was incredibly helpful and opened my eyes in so many different directions. So I want to say that this mentoring can happen both ways. Is, is Rick and I can get just stuck in our ways and, and we don't even know what the possibilities are. So I love going to millennials and saying, okay, how would you tackle this problem? If you had to help Biola University move into the modern era, what are the things that we should change? And I would hope that this mentoring would always happen in both directions. I'd like us to talk about intragenerational conversations. So millennials within millennials. Um, I know that you work in circles where you count, encounter many different types of millennials. Um, so what are some conversations that you've seen millennials have among each other? Important conversations. Well, let's go back for a second. Remember I said with every advancement, you have to ask what's good and what's bad. I think millennials are very intuitive when it comes to social media, uh, forming community through non-traditional ways, at least non-traditional to the older generation. 
But I must say there, and, and every generation has its defensiveness. Mm -hmm. So I don't see nearly enough conversations among millennials of what this technology is costing you. Plato said you can't open your soul to anything and not be affected. So I do think as much as being gained through social media, I don't hear millennials having reflective conversations about, hey, what are we giving up when it comes to attention span? Research is showing how the brain is literally being rewired through social media. So those are the conversations I don't hear often among millennials that causes me at least pause and concern. One of the things I think millennials have been good at doing is being inclusive in their conversations. You know, the, the background of cultural diversity, you know, having regard for the other, awareness of the fact that oftentimes you unintentionally exclude people or devalue the other. These are things that my generation tends to be able to think of when you remind them to think of it. This generation tends to have grown up swimming in those waters. And so they tend to be, you know, more readily and authentically uh, inclusive that way. It just feels natural to them. And I think that's a great virtue. And I think it shows up in kind of a variety of ways. One is, who do you include in your friendship circle? The, the example of ethnicity was interesting for me when my kids were, they went to a large public high school. But when we had graduation activities or events, you know, that had the high school kids over at the house, we really did have a little slice of the United Nations represented there. And that wasn't a thing that had any sense of contriveness about it. That was just who we all are. And I think that's just, a, it's a good thing that I think has, has come to pass in that kind of inclusion, I think has been good. And I think Rick and I, we would add social justice, the class that we teach together we call it being counterpublics, but you could call it a class on social justice. You actually advocate for the marginalized, the oppressed. So again, this is another principle that we've been talking about. Um, so social justice is great. I think millennials have done a great job reminding the church that this has always been part of our heritage. But what concerns us would be they're not having conversations about evangelism per se. Mm -hmm. So if you say to people, hey, what'd you do this summer? I said, hey, we dug clean water wells. We helped uh, an orphanage in a certain place. We helped address sex trafficking in Orange County. All phenomenal, phenomenal things. But ask them the question, did you ever share your faith? And by that, I mean, did you talk to a person about whether he or she knows Christ and would they like to? And one year I did a survey of my students asking, how many times have you shared your faith? And this is my definition of what it means to do that. And the answer was zero, was the most common answer. If it means presenting the gospel to a person and asking that person if they would like to, if he or she would like to receive Christ. So again, but where do you start when talking to a millennial, right? Do I start with where I'm concerned or do you start with the positives? And I think social justice is awesome. I think millennials have done a great job to remind the church we've always done this. We just sort of forgot about it. But again, do you focus on the positive first or the negatives first, your concerns or what you like? And I think that's important to focus on the, what you like and affirm before you move to areas of contention. So among millennials, there is a propensity to do good and to do social impactful work and make that footprint in the world. And so millennials often are painted as the generation with very big dreams. But among them, as they grow older, there's a lot of lost dreamers. And then there's a lot of lost ambitions. So what have you observed while watching these millennials um, wrestle with this newfound internal struggle as they grow older? 
I would first say that I think that's a really good insight about this generation, that they do tend to be people with dreams, with passions and things like that, that they hold very deeply, they value them highly. And I think that's been a, a great thing. I'm a huge fan of cultivating <laughs> dreams and passion and, and idealism. As you mentioned, the problem is that sometimes as this begins to work out, then it, it doesn't work out the mm -hmm. way you want it to. And then you end up with sort of despair. And so not to do this as a criticism of the idealism, but to say, okay, if you're going to run with the idealism, how do you actually make this work in, in real life? Because it isn't going to rise up and meet you with mm -hmm. a big sunny smile. It probably won't work that way. So how do you navigate those waters? And I think that's a real challenge. And I think one of the things that has been problematic is actually cultivating the idea that everyone should always be able to do things in accordance with their passion. Mm -hmm. Their desire should be the, the ultimate guide of what happens. And if I were to do a contrast, not with my generation, but a generation even earlier than mine, probably my parents' generation and even before that more strongly, they would have navigated by duty. And duty 100 years ago was a positive word mm -hmm. in terms of its connotations. If you identified a person as being faithful to their duty, that was, that was high mm -hmm. praise. Nowadays, it's roughly the equivalent of saying you're self-righteous, pharisaical, and legalistic. It's not a term that we would use of praise. Well, that's a really interesting movement over the course of 100 years. And whatever the virtues and vices of those two are, I would argue that duty doesn't necessarily burn out quite the same way. In other words, there'll always be a duty to do. If you're saying, this is a thing, I need to be faithful to do the things that I am supposed to do. I'm supposed to be a servant. Jesus talks about this in Luke 17, where he says, you know, if you have a servant and he comes in from having worked in the field, you say, oh, sit down, take a rest. He says, no, clean up, serve me, let me eat and drink, and then you can have your own meal. And, and when I've done all that, do you, do you thank the servant? Of course not. He's your servant. That's what he's supposed to do. Wow. You want a counter-cultural passage. Read Luke 17. The idea that we should somehow be a servant and people should be expecting us to do something, namely our duty, that just is not on our horizon. And again, I am not, that is not a thing that really separates the two generations we've been talking about. My generation, we often call the me generation, <laughs> the, the, the yeah. baby boomers and things like this were, were pre So this is, this is really a thing that we share in common, mm -hmm. but it's really different from a generation earlier. And I think that's one of those things. There's benefits because there was a hard, sad, dismal end edge to the person who had spent 45 or 50 years unhappily always doing their duty. And I think a lot of us in my generation would see that in our parents and kind of say, yeah, it's cute when 30 years later, Tom Brokaw gets to call him the greatest generation. But man, when you lived with them, they weren't so great. They were sad. You know, they were gutting mm -hmm. it up. They were all of those sorts of things. It, it's like most aspirations. You can't just have the one thing. You need duty and you need passion. You need to have the sense of purpose. You need to have some idealism and some dreams. At the same time, you need to have faithfulness, follow through, integrity, hard work, diligence, industry, all of those boring old words. It's the proper combination of those things that actually contributes to, to flourishing. And my sense about generations in general is that we tend not to keep good right. balances. We, we, we run this way, we run that way, and it kind of always ends up being a, a little dysfunctional. And I would add one thing to that is to the millennials who I love their passion. I, I love it. A really weird thing happens when you get older, you start to become in charge of these things. So it's one thing to dig uh, clean water wells. It's another thing when you're the one in charge of mm -hmm. the organization that is organizing this. So Biola just started, it launches in the fall. We started a center for marriage. 
because we're concerned, like most people, that America is redefining marriage today. The divorce rate is still very high. And so we want to start a, a center that would speak into this modern culture today to say, hey, let's go back to biblical marriage, which is wonderfully idealistic. But now, okay, awesome. You launched this center. Well, okay, here's your budget. If you want to do more, you got to raise the money. If you're going to hire a person, you have to offer them benefits or nobody's going to take your job. We're going to help fund you for like two and a half years, but you have to be fully self-funded the third year, which means it's awesome to, awesome to be idealistic, but the lights have to stay on. And so it's this really weird thing that I think millennials will experience is pretty soon you become the leadership and your idealism is hit with, by the way, you also got to pay for the offices. You got to offer health, dental to your employees. And you just sit there and you go, well, doggone it. I want to be out there addressing this. And now I'm having to deal with, you know, a person just quit. So that is really a bummer. Because I want to be on the front lines changing the narrative about marriage in the United States. On three, break. Let's go. It's like, awesome. Uh, who's going to drive and do you have a car? Oh, I don't. You know what I mean? So I, I, I want to say to my millennial friends, keep your passion. But I would add to what Rick said. I'd throw in one other caveat. Have some pragmatism. You got to pay the bills. And I know that's just a bummer and nobody gets jazzed up about having to pay the bills. But Biola would close tomorrow if there weren't people constantly thinking about that as Rick and I get to go do interviews and write books. There are people who are keeping the lights on for us. So you can't be a complete radical. Very few people can exist that way. Yeah, you need dental insurance, most <laughs> of us. And I see that among my peers as well. I think what pairs with that is oftentimes um, lack of perseverance. One of the statistics that recently came out this year, it was Forbes magazine, said that before the 27th birthday, they've switched from job to job, at least six or seven jobs. On average, they'll only stay at a company for two years and then switch. Yeah. And what we gain from that using the model is that we're getting a variety of work experience, really being able to taste the things that we are passionate seeing. But then what we lose from that is we never see the fruit, the long-term yeah. results. Yeah. And in every organization, in every relationship, there's that um, life cycle. Mm -hmm. And we're not seeing the full life cycle because we leave before when it, things get rough. That, that's a great point. You lose something, mm -hmm. you put in the work, but you don't see the fruit. Or maybe you were there for the harvest, but you're just missing part of the package. There's another kind of hidden loss, interesting combination things make for a hidden loss. You may have uh, read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's, uh, I can't remember, it's from Tipping Point or one of his other books, where he talks about the 10,000-hour rule. It basically takes 10,000 hours mm -hmm. to become an expert in anything. Genius doesn't really happen. It just 10,000 hours. I'm a little skeptical. You know, Mozart pops out at age three, can play a piano concerto. <laughs> I don't think he's had 10,000 hours to learn. But the basic idea, I think, is right. Well, if you change every two years, when do you get your 10,000 right. hours? You never become a true expert. So that's the first problem. The second problem is the interesting hidden side effect of that. Uh, Aristotle, just one of those observations, isn't like this grand absolute truth, but his observation was pleasure accompanies any activity done well. And if you never really learn to do an activity well, the backhanded side effect of that is you never really learn pleasure. You don't get authentic pleasure of having mastered some activity and really doing it well. So this 10,000 hour rule, it isn't just a way to help you be a more effective employee in something or more expert in something. 
that expertise brings with it a sense of mm -hmm. pleasure that you end up denying yourself as you move from place to place to place. That made me think, Rick, of a business consultant who says most people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in five years. I thought that's a great quote. You can't get a master's in a year, mm -hmm. but you can do it in five years. You can't get a PhD in a year, but you can be well on your way within five years. I don't want to discourage millennials, though, at the beginning. Like when you're in your early 20s, I think there needs to be exploration. I do think it's good to try many different things and find out what you want to do, what you don't want to do. And then when you find out what you want to do, then you have to roll up the sleeves and really get at it. When I was in my early 20s, I did go do relief work in Africa. I did tour with a Christian comedy club that we'd go off to different universities and do stuff. And, and you know, we, we slept in horrible places and ate popcorn for dinner. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I, I want to say to millennials, when you're young and you, you don't have a family yet, then I think it's okay to explore. But sometimes you get caught in that perpetual exploring mm -hmm. and now you're in your early 30s. Mm -hmm. I don't want to begrudge millennials. I like the idea of going off and, and uh, change your major a couple of times if you need to. You know what I mean? So I want that exploration thrown in as well. But there comes a time when you're just going to have to buckle down and do it. Uh, Rick and I would both attest to the fact that having a PhD doesn't mean we're smarter. It does mean that you had to persevere and you had to jump through a bunch of hoops. Uh, what's the horrible statistic, Rick, we came across? There are people who have all the work done for their PhD. Everything is done, but the dissertation is not written. We call them ABD, all but dissertation. Do you know how many PhD students never get their PhD because they don't finish the dissertation, 80%. 80% do not write the dissertation because it takes a lot to write the dissertation. Thus, they're never a doctor. And so, yeah, it, it was, it took me a year and a half to write my dissertation. I had a great wife who helped and my kids were like, what grade is dad in for crying out loud? <laughs> but, but so that perseverance is what I eventually would want to give to every generation is to say, yeah, we do need to persevere, right? Yeah. And I think that is a very fair thing to say that this is really a thing. I mean, as Tim mentioned, doing stand-up comedy and, and things like that in college, I lived in Germany for a year. Mm -hmm. I went to Guam, lived in India, did yeah, all great. kinds of crazy things. I looking back, a million things I would never do today. And if I did, my wife would kill me if the thing didn't. And so I just, you know, there's a million things that the time to do them is when you're young. And when you say looking and back, you're glad you did those? Absolutely. Ones? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and yeah. you know, my mm -hmm. parents might have had a different viewpoint on the matter, but I was <laughs> glad I did them. And looking back, I'm glad I did them, but please don't ask me to let my children do them. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the tension. I think every Isn't generation that funny, has Rick? that anxiety. Yep. Yep. What about my kid and, and will they make it? And, and I think that's just absolutely just normal life. Um, and it's a wonderful thing to have, have those kinds of experiences. I'm all in favor of it. So you mentioned your new book about the counterpublic. What is the counterpublic life? A counterpublic would be when you're in the minority perspective. You believe something, but clearly most Americans do not agree, or most people of your country do not agree with your particular perspective. We call that the counterpublic. You're countering a public opinion. So it could be something like a redefinition of marriage today. It could be anything like a political view. Your party isn't in power right now and you want to try to convince people that the minority perspective, one, at least needs to have a hearing. Please hear me out that we have concerns about the redefinition of marriage or immigration law or something like that. Second, it would be that you really do want to 
have things change. It's not that you're just getting stuff off your chest and you feel good about it. You actually do have a vision for how your community, what it should look like or your country. And so you're actually trying to persuade the people in power to make real changes. The hard thing about that is people in power tend not to want to give it up. So you have to find a way into the media. You have to find a way of gathering people, motivating them to try to do change. And certainly our book is from a Christian perspective. So we're taking a look at the good news, which is Christians have always been counterpublics. And we've actually seen historically really interesting and successful individuals and communities be counterpublics. And Rick actually has done some research on those individuals. So Rick, why don't you mention a couple that you find really interesting? Yeah. One of the things, if you just kind of unpack that phrase, counterpublic, You want to remember, it kind of needs to be both. Some people will look at the way the prevailing world is going and simply withdraw. So they are not countering. They are simply separating. And historically, the church has had plenty of movements like that. The Desert Fathers would be one of the great examples of people who just said, we don't like the way this world that we're seeing right now is going, and we will simply separate. We will go live in the desert. We will isolate and seclude ourselves. And there we will pursue the kingdom, but we won't engage with the broader culture around us. So they basically refuse to do the countering part. The other thing that people will do is is to do things individually in isolation. And they don't form an alternative community. It just is the kind of the prophetic voice, the person who, who shouts against what may be going on, but they don't offer kind of the positive alternative. They don't cultivate that as a community. And the voice isn't a community voice, but rather in the, the isolated voice. And again, the church has had plenty of people who have done some of those kinds of things. I think what's always been most effective and most valuable is when people come together and say, as a corporate body, we will present an alternative way of of really living. And that will become a powerful testimony to the authenticness of the claims of the gospel. It doesn't make the gospel true or false, but it makes the gospel plausible or implausible. When a person takes the content of the gospel, puts it into a way of living together that people look at and say, wow, that's compelling. Uh, You haven't made the gospel true or false, but you've made it easier or more difficult for a person to to believe it. And that's the thing that I want to say is that church becomes the plausibility structure for the gospel. And one of the ways we do that is becoming an effective counterpublic. A great example of this would actually be St. Patrick in his uh, mission to Ireland, where where he went to an island that um, you could hardly overstate the anti-Christian nature of the people that he went to. His first trip, so to speak, to Ireland was because he, Patrick wasn't Irish, he was British, and he was captured by Irish pirates on a family outing at the beach, and he was taken back to Ireland and made a slave for seven years to an Irish war chief. And his experience there was absolutely terrible, and he actually ultimately fled and ended up going to Gaul, became, uh, met Christ kind of in the midst of his slavery, actually came back uh, to serve as a pastor and a bishop in Great Britain, not in Ireland. Um, Mm -hmm. After 20 years of doing that, he felt a very strong call to go to to Ireland and to reach this very violent, antagonistic, hostile culture, hostile to other people in general, hostile to one another. It was a combative, nomadic, tribal warfare kind of a context. How do you reach these folks? Well, the interesting thing that Patrick did was he did it by, by cultivating a very pronounced counter-public. He didn't come alone. He brought 12 people with him, 12 disciples, go figure. And (laughs) when they arrived, they uh, uh, found a chief who was willing to let them 
kind of live in their immediate area. And what they did was they built what we might view like a wall for a monastery or something like that, but that would be the wrong way to view it. What they really did was they built a wall, but that wall was like the markings on a playing field, like on a football field or a soccer field that says, here's the boundaries. And within these boundaries, we're going to play by the rules of the kingdom of heaven. You have a violent world out there within the context of this area. You'll live in a place where people will turn the other cheek. Rather than exploiting people, we will go the extra mile. What the Bible says, that's what we will do, and we will live that way. The gate was always open. There wasn't a barrier there. It was open access. But once you walked into that field, you had to play by the rules of the kingdom of heaven, so to speak. And they would create these enclaves, and they, they were living an alternative lifestyle that was absolutely a compelling alternative to the violence and destruction of the culture that was around them. And people were drawn. And one of the interesting things that they did after they got a batch of new people there is they left two of the people behind, and then they picked up two people from the existing community there to go to the next place. So they always went with 12 people, but they would keep getting a couple of new folks in. And for people who had been involved in tribal warfare with one another for generations, they were always picking up someone from a culture, from a clan that had fought with the next one they were going to. And as they did that, they were sowing a model of reconciliation, of peace, and things like that, simply by the people they brought and the way they lived their lives. So it became an incredibly powerful testimony to the gospel. But part of why it was so effective was it was not only countering, but it was publicing. It was, it was creating a community that modeled that sort of alternative vision. So how do you live the counterpublic? Well, you know what's interesting? Going back to St. Patrick, it actually was pretty easy to live a counterpublic life. In such a violent environment, when you show kindness, grace, compassion, it actually comes to the forefront. So I think for us, in the argument culture today, where we just attack each other, America is really broken politically, and everybody would agree with that. Everybody would agree that Capitol Hill is a mess right now because we attack each other. We don't try to listen. Mm -hmm. So if you do listen first, the book of Proverbs says in Proverbs 18, 13, it's folly and shame to speak before listening. So if you're a person who authentically listens, if you're a person who's kind, not just to the people who support your perspective, but you're kind to the people who really disagree with you, if you bless those who insult you, you rise to the top fairly quickly that people look at that and say, okay, something's different about this group. And I'm not quite sure what it is, but something is very different about this community. So as bad as culture can get sometimes, it makes it easier for Christians to be counterpublics because we just won't buy into a system that attacks and tries to devour each other. We are called to, when our enemy is hungry to feed him, when he's thirsty to give him something to drink. I think the world will take notice when we start to do that kind of stuff. And one of our challenges is we, at this particular cultural moment, we tend to be preoccupied by trying to be accepting of the culture and say, hey, we're just like everybody else. We want to fit in. We don't want to be weird. We don't want to be different. So in effect, back to the counter-public phrase, we're refusing to be counter. We are letting the culture be our guide. We are trying to accommodate there. Or sometimes what we do is kind of the opposite is to say, well, gee, Whatever the world is doing, whatever the culture is doing is bad. So what's good must be the opposite of whatever the culture is doing. We simply become mm -hmm. anti-culture. And the goal is not to be anti-culture. The goal isn't to be pro-culture. The goal is to be Christ-like. 
And there's part of culture that will indeed be reverberating features of, of who Jesus was. There are other parts of culture that are not. And we need to be discerning enough to be able to participate in and encourage parts of culture that are actually things that Jesus would encourage and condone. We need to be wise enough to say this is a part of culture that Jesus wouldn't approve of. And we will either distance ourselves from it or we will seek to change that part of culture. But you can't be a counterpublic if the metronome you hear that keeps the beat for your music is the metronome of the culture that you're in. You'll just be marching with everyone else. And I think that's been one of our problems. We've either just got total rejection of everything and we navigate by rejecting. We, we know where we want to go because wherever I want to go, I'm going to go the opposite. Yeah. That's unhelpful. The opposite is unhelpful. We have to be able to, to have this clear vision of who Jesus is and say, that's our direction. And when you begin to do that, you'll find lots of things that you're counter-publicing on because Jesus really does march to a different drummer. For the millennials, do you have any additional hindsight kind of advice? I mentioned earlier the issue of diversity and, uh, you know, being accepting of, of, you know, cultural, different cultures and ethnicities and all these kinds of things. With that is a very high level commitment to non-judgmentalism. Mm -hmm. I, I will not be judgmental. To call a person judgmental is one of the worst insults mm -hmm. you could give them. That means they're narrow-minded and self-righteous and there's a whole package of travels with it. And I'm happy to say being judgmental isn't a good thing, but I would like to argue that being discerning is actually a good thing, that there are such things as things that are wrong. Mm -hmm. There are things that are simply evil, and you need a vocabulary to talk about those things, and you need to actually use that vocabulary. You need mm -hmm. to be able to say, that's wrong. And for all of your love of everyone's got a right to choose to do what they want to do or to be what they want to be, I think an important part of maturing, particularly as a believer, though I would actually say as a, as a human being, is to discern the difference between what is right and what is wrong, to be able to pursue that with that clean distinction in mind and actually be able to articulate that to others in a way, as Tim and I have talked about, in a way that is not offensive, but there's nothing we have said mm -hmm. that I would ever want anyone to hear say, therefore, you don't talk about this. We say, absolutely, you talk about this and you talk about it with great clarity. No one should leave the conversation wondering, well, what did he think? On the other hand, you don't want to do that in a way that is offensive. This is all good. But I think the millennial generation has drifted in this direction towards of being so judgmental that you become inarticulate regarding your own morality. You become unable to defend it when someone asks it of you, and you became unable to apply it when you see it going on in, in those around you. And so this is a major area of concern for me when I, when I think about this generation. I would say it's a challenge. Given the things that you have going for you, one of your challenges that will travel with that will be this, this kind of inarticulate inability to, to have a clear moral vision that you can articulate, pursue, and, and apply in the context of the culture God's placed you. I would throw out to millennials, learn from the busters and the boomers that when you do not have Sabbath rest, you cannot ignore God's command to take a Sabbath. He rested on the seventh day and he commands us to rest. And boomers and busters don't do it. And we've got the heart rates, the health problems, the high cholesterol, the stress to show God knew exactly what he was saying. So I would say to millennials, you need to have a day, one day out of the week that is qualitatively different. 
So that would be a day that I would, for the millennials, turn off your technology for one day. And maybe not, it's not even a whole day, half a day. But there needs to be a day that is completely qualitatively different. And I would say that's true of my generation as well. But learn from my generation. It has caught up to us. And we're, we don't sleep well. We're stressed to the max. Everybody needs to lose weight. Because we have violated one of God's central commands. And that is, I want you to have Sabbath rest every week. So the weekends are, you know, my generation, it's crazy. We're off doing everything, you know, ballet tournaments, taekwondo, I mean, everything, because we live through our kids. It's ridiculous. So we're tired. So I would say the millennials, God knew what he was doing when he said, get Sabbath rest. And I would, I would find it a day. You just turn off the cell phone and you just let the rhythm of non-technological life take over for a little bit and focus on God. I think that'd be really important for millennials. I think the same thing would be true of, of saying, make family a real priority yeah. and just make that an absolutely central navigating value. And we have tended to let the same things that Tim was talking about, the things that made us neglect Sabbath, have always also made us neglect family. We haven't invested in family, been too busy with jobs or climbing ladders or doing whatever things that we do that we have, have often given family the, the second best part of our time or the third best or the fourth best. Mm -hmm. And that has often kept families from even continuing, being able to be intact. And I think that would be a thing I would love to see the millennial generations say, you know, we can do better. They have a value, I think, by and large on community that my hope would be that you don't just think of amorphously of community. Communities have to be sustained by structures. And the family is the most central of those, but other ongoing social institutions, even the organized church is one of those structures that keeps people together in community because a, a, a floating community doesn't really work. I would argue that the key word when you say a virtual community, a virtual community is by definition not a community. It's only virtually a community, but it's not really. It lacks coherent structure. And I think that's the things families and other institutions of community are things that we have not tended to do well. And I, it would be my hope, my prayer, and my, my, my dream for this next generation that they would turn a corner on some of those things. I agree with Rick saying family needs to be central. But let me put a little caveat on that. I deal with these family life marriage conferences with people who have overreacted mm -hmm. to what you yeah. said. They're yeah. having a family affair right now. So in other words, the kids are the priority of that marriage. And so there's no time for couples. So they come up at a family life conference and will say things like, it's been six, this is the first time in six years we've been away from the kids. And I'm like, look, I really commend you for being at this marriage conference, but that is not good for your kids. It is not good for your kids to think we are the focus of this relationship. So I agree with what Rick is saying. It's kind of like polar opposites, but let's not overreact and make the kids and the family the most important thing because that family affair is, it's really killing marriages. So the two major times for divorce in the United States are within the first four years of the marriage. I think people realize how hard it is and I didn't necessarily sign up for this and this is what the notebook, the movie told me marriage would be like. <laughs> but then you get the next big time is when the kids move out of the house and the marriage died a long time ago. The whole purpose of us being together was to get the kids through college. Now they're out of the house almost out of college, man, this relationship died. So when former Vice President Al Gore and his wife separated and divorced, it shocked a lot of people, except for people who studied marriage, to say, you know what, the marriage died a long time ago because it was about the family. So let's have a balanced approach to this. Family is incredibly important, but the marriage needs to be something 
that's separate from the family. And we're not necessarily seeing that a lot today. Well, Rickenton, thank you for coming. And thank you for your valuable time and expert insights. We thank God for your scholarship and examples in growing our young leaders. Thank you.